So this morning we're continuing, uh, we're working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians in our morning service, and uh, today we're going to look at the first eight, chapter, uh, eight chapters, eight verses of chapter four. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. I remember hearing about a church that had two pastors. They had the senior pastor and they had the youth pastor. And somebody once asked one of the members of the congregation whose preaching she preferred. And she very diplomatically said, well, I enjoy them both, but I have noticed that the pastor always says lastly and lasts, whereas the youth pastor says finally and finishes. And if you look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, you'll notice that Paul begins by saying finally, um, but he doesn't finish. He's still good for another 46 verses. Very good preacher. And so maybe the word finally isn't the best translation. In fact, the newer NIV uh, begins, and now. Because at this point in his letter, Paul is changing gears. He spent the first three chapters talking about his ministry in Thessalonica. He's spoken uh, to uh, the church about why he hasn't been able to visit them as yet. And now he's going to move on to speak about some important practical issues Uh, Things that new Christians need to know. Uh, Things that they have asked Paul and things that he feels he needs to tell them. So let's have a look from verse 1. Finally, or and now, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong a brother or sister or take advantage of them. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject human beings, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Should just mention this sermon comes with an age restriction. Uh, so the room up the back there has a video link as well, uh, in case you need to, to use that. I heard about a young primary school boy who was busy with some schoolwork at his desk, and his dad walked past, and the little boy said to his dad, Dad, what is sex? And his father gulped a few times and then sat down opposite his son and took a deep breath and started to explain about the birds and the bees and how when a mom and dad really love each other, etc. And when he'd finished, there was a long pause. And the little boy said, how in the world am I supposed to fit all of that into the little block on my camp application form? (laughs) Context is important. (laughs) And in fact, the context of Paul's words about sex in this passage is no less important. We are going to look briefly at what Paul says about sex here. But really, these verses are not primarily about sex. What is the main theme of this passage? 
It's, it's the topic of holiness. It's holiness. Have a look again. The word holy is used four times in this passage. In verse 3, Paul says, It is God's will that you be sanctified. In other words, made holy. In verse 4, he says, Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And in verse 8, he says, God who gives you his Holy Spirit. These verses are intended to teach us about holiness. Now, the word holy isn't a word that you often hear, or if you do hear it in today's society, it's often used in a derogatory uh, manner. Uh, It's just about obsolete in its real sense in our world, and maybe it's becoming a little obsolete in our churches. When was the last time you heard a sermon on holiness? But holiness is actually a very big deal. Look again, verse 3, it is God's will that you be sanctified. Verse 7, God has called us to live a holy life. The word holy occurs in the Bible about 600 times, and one whole book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, deals specifically uh, with this topic of holiness. In fact, it's in the book of Leviticus that we read that God commands us to be holy. Chapter 19, verse 2. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And just in case we think this is just something for the Old Testament, we need to remind ourselves that that command is repeated in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Holiness is important to God, and so it's important for us too. A few weeks ago, we looked at the verse in Hebrews 12, where God's word says, make every effort to be holy, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What does that mean? Let me quickly say what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that somehow we can earn our way into God's good books. The very best Christian ever cannot get into heaven by his or her own efforts. We're only saved through Jesus' death for us on the cross. He dies in my place for my sin. And on the cross, a marvelous exchange takes place. Paul speaks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, my sinful life is credited to the Lord Jesus, and when I accept his sacrifice for me, God takes Jesus' perfect life and credits it to my account. I'm made righteous, holy in his sight. So when I become a Christian, God's Holy Spirit comes into me. I'm declared to be holy. If I were to drop dead that moment, I would stand before God, and God would declare, Andrew is righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. So a little earlier on in the book of Hebrews, just in case we get the wrong idea, the writer says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But we can't leave it there. 
The Bible speaks about the holiness that we have in Christ before God, but the Bible then speaks about a, a holiness that we need to strive after. The writer says, make every effort to be holy. And the same Holy Spirit who makes me holy before God creates in me a desire to become holy. Jerry Bridges has written an entire book on, on holiness, and at one point he says this, the Holy Spirit who creates within us saving faith also creates within us the desire for holiness. He simply doesn't create one without the other. If there's no desire within me uh, to become holy, then it's very clear that Christ's Holy Spirit doesn't really live within me. It would be a little bit like standing up in a church and going through a, a marriage ceremony and then going home you know, into two separate apartments and living two separate lives. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, I'm declared to be married, but the rest of my life involves uh, working out a, a marriage relationship. So what is holiness? Well, the word has the sense of uh, being separate. I often use the illustration of my toothbrush. My toothbrush is holy. It is separated to me. It is separated to the brushing of my teeth and separated from digging in the garden, cleaning my daughter's shoes, or brushing the hamster's teeth. In verse 7, Paul says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. There's the, the two uh, aspects of that separateness. Separated from impurity, we're not to be impure, and separated to God but to live a holy life. Paul uses another picture in verse 1, which is very helpful for us. Maybe we can't all relate to the concept of holiness, but we can understand and apply what Paul says in verse 1. Look again. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Holiness in its essence means living to please God and Him alone. It's a very helpful picture, this idea that I can please God, that my life can bring a smile to the face of God. It's helpful, but it, it's challenging. Let me mention a, a couple of reasons why it's challenging. Uh, Pastor John Stott mentions these in his commentary. Firstly, this idea of living to please God is quite radical because it touches every area of my life. Now, there isn't an area of my life that I can say, well, I don't want to live to please God in this area. Uh, I need to please God as a husband, as a father, as a friend. I want to please God in my finances, in my work, my leisure. Secondly, it's a, it's a flexible concept. Uh, this idea of living to please God uh, keeps us from rule-keeping. Because so often uh, we, we tend to think in this way, you know, good Christians don't do this and good Christians do do that. But that's not what this is about. My aim isn't to tick a whole lot of boxes, but to please a person. My aim isn't to obey a whole lot of laws, but rather to love the lawgiver. And there's all the difference in the world between slavishly obeying a set of rules and loving the lawgiver. 
And thirdly, this idea of living to please God is a progressive concept. Paul says we're to do this more and more. It's a lifelong project. I'm never going to be able to say I'm finished. I've done that. I've lived to please God. I'll be living to please God until the day that I die. And we're not alone in this. In verse 8, Paul speaks about God who gives you his Holy Spirit. God has given us his Holy Spirit to work in us and enable us to become holy. My job is to keep in step with God's Holy Spirit. In fact, in his second letter to Thessalonians, Paul says, God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. It's God's Holy Spirit who makes us holy. So just to sum all of that up, when I turn to Christ, God declares me to be holy in his sight. But God also calls me to holiness. Be holy because I'm holy. It's God's will that I be made holy, separated to God, separated from evil. And God gives me his Holy Spirit in order to become holy. And that context is very important to establish because as James reminds us in James chapter 2, we all struggle in different ways. And as we move on to look at the second topic in this uh, sermon, we can't just sit back and say, this has got nothing to do with me. I don't struggle in that area. All of us this morning need to look at our lives and ask the question, are there specific areas in my life where God is calling me to holiness? Maybe it's my temper. Maybe it's my finances, my sarcasm, envy, greed, pride, gossip, racism. And if this morning you can't think of a particular area in your life where you may need to become holy, then ask a friend. And when they've shared with you, you'll have to deal with anger first, (laughs) and then the next thing uh, that it is that they've spoken to you about. (laughs) But what areas of my life need to be sanctified to God this morning? What areas of my life should I be sanctified from? So with all of that in mind, Paul turns to this topic of our sexuality. Why does he do that? Out of all of the practical topics that Paul could have mentioned, why why pick on sex? Why not murder or stealing or greed? Well, probably for a couple of reasons. Uh, Firstly, sexual immorality was a huge issue in Paul's day, as it is in our own. We tend to think the morality of our day is pretty bad. It wasn't all that different in Paul's time. Uh, One of the pagan writers living even before Paul, a chap by the name of Demosthenes, had famously written, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body, and we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the guardianship of our homes which pretty much summed up the sexual ethic of the time. And so Paul addresses sex because it was and is one of the major preoccupations of our lives. As Philip Yancey says in one of his books, if Christianity makes sense, it must make sense here. But I think that Paul addresses the issue of sexuality for another reason as well. Paul has been speaking about pursuing God living to please God. 
separating ourselves to God. And then he speaks about sex because actually sex can become a substitute for God. The journalist and writer G.K. Chesterton, very famous now for creating Father Brown, which some of you watch. I love a TV series where the priest is the hero. Uh, He wrote some very good Christian books as well. And he once said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is searching for God. What he's saying is that there is something transcendent about sex. Philip Yancey points this out in one of his books. You know, he says, much of our human knowledge has solved most of today's mysteries. There aren't too many things in our world that are mysterious anymore. We can vaguely predict the weather. Uh, Couples can find out the sex of their baby before it is born. In fact, nowadays you can look at a 3D image of your child before he or she is born. But sex is still a mystery. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have about it, it is still mysterious. You can have a degree in gynecology and it would be still mysterious. Um, It doesn't play according to the rules. If you feed the appetite of sex, the appetite increases. It doesn't decrease. And many human beings are are looking for a sense of mystery and transcendence, and they end up looking in the wrong place. They look to sex, and sex often replaces God. And so I think that Paul addresses the topic of sexual immorality straight after he speaks about pursuing God, Because he knows that sex can be searching for transcendence, that sex can be a substitute for God, and that either our sexuality will lead us back to God or lead us further away from him. All right, so what does Paul have to say about our sexuality? Well, two things. Firstly, Paul gives us the context for sex in verse 4. Now, verse 4 is actually quite a difficult verse. Uh, The Greek text literally reads, each of you should learn to acquire his own vessel in holiness and honor. And uh, the New International Version very carefully points out that there are three ways of translating this verse. First of all, the way the main text has it, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Or it can mean each of you should learn to acquire a wife in a way that is holy and honorable, all the single men. Or each of you should learn to live with his own wife in a way that is holy and honorable. There is this biblical support for all three of those translations, but I think the third one is the correct one. Each of you should learn to live with his own wife in a way that is holy and honorable. Mainly because Paul repeats this in his letter to the Corinthians where he says each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) The important thing to see here, though, is the context for sex. Despite the wide variety of options that are presented to us this morning, the only context for sex, according to the Bible, is heterosexual marriage. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Why? Because God hates sex and wants to limit it as much as possible? No. 
God designed sex, but he designed it in a very specific way. Uh, We looked at this earlier um, in our Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 5. I'm not going to repeat that sermon. You can read it or uh, listen to it online. Uh, But in Genesis chapter 2, we read how God creates Adam, and he places him in a garden. And then he gets Adam to name all of the animals. And according to the chronology of the book of Genesis, that takes about 100 years as Adam names all of the various animals. And Adam notices that each animal has its mate, male and female. But there is no suitable partner for Adam, the Bible says. And so one very important day, God acts as an anesthetist and he puts Adam to sleep. He acts as a surgeon and he removes a piece from Adam's side. God acts as a craftsman as he carefully fashions Eve. And then God acts as a proud father-in-law as he walks Eve down an aisle of trees and presents her to Adam. And Adam sees this beautiful creature standing before him, nude. And he cries out, whoa, man, which is where we get the word woman from. And then the Bible says these very important words. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's God's standard for marriage. And anything outside of that damages us. So interesting here, Paul says, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. That speaks about a final punishment when God comes to judge the world. But I think this also applies to the fact that when we go outside of God's boundaries, life fragments. We receive consequences. We damage ourselves and the good gift that God has given us. The walls that God places around sex aren't meant to create a prison. They're meant to protect an intimate, sacred garden. That's why we need to read the Bible's instructions on sexual ethics in this context of holiness. We don't say sexual immorality is bad because the Bible says so. Rather, we affirm sexual immorality is bad because it robs us of something sacred and special. God comes to us and he says, I'm giving you the most wonderful gift imaginable. Not sex per se, but intimacy. Being naked and unashamed with one person. This gift is too wonderful to be used in just any way. It's sacred and special. You know, in the old Anglican wedding vows, the man says to his bride as he places the ring on her finger, with this ring I thee wed. With my body, I thee worship. Something sacred just between the two of them. Which brings us to Paul's second point regarding our sexuality. If the context of sex is heterosexual marriage, then the God-given nature of sex is honor. Have a look at verse 4 again. Each of you should learn to live with his own wife in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong a brother or sister or take advantage of them. The God-given context of sex is heterosexual marriage, and the God-given nature of sex in marriage is honor. 
And that's important in a world that has gone sex mad and tries all sorts of things to, quote, make sex more exciting. I'm told that the number one question that Christian marriage counselors are asked in relation to sex is this. Can we try this, fill in the blank, in our sexual relationship? Here, I think, is the Bible's answer to that. Isn't it interesting? We just spoke about the fact that holiness affects every area of our life, even the intimacy of the bedroom. We're to honor our marriage partner in this area. We need to communicate clearly with our husband or wife, and then we need to act in a way that is honorable. I'm going to just quote John Stott on this. It's a lot easier than me doing it myself. (laughs) He makes these remarks in his commentary. He says, The fact that marriage is the only God-given context for sexual intercourse doesn't mean that within marriage there's no need for restraint. We've all heard or read about and some have experienced the selfish sexual demands which are sometimes made by one marriage partner on the other. But marriage isn't a form of legalized lust. The fact is that there is a world of difference between lust and love, between dishonorable sexual practices which use the partner and true lovemaking which honors the partner between the selfish desire to possess and the unselfish desire to love, cherish, and respect. Our sexuality is to be characterized by holiness. We're to separate ourselves, and we're to become uh, one... Let me get this right. (laughs) We are to separate ourselves from all other women or all other men. I'm to be a one-woman man or a one-man-woman. Just wanted to make sure I got that right. (laughs) What do we do practically with this battle? Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1600s, wrote this about lust. He says, But some might say waiting for marriage is unbearable and aggravating. They're right. It's very similar to other difficulties requiring patience that believers must face, such as fasting, imprisonment, cold, sickness, and persecution. Lust is a serious burden. You must resist it and fight against it. But after you have overcome it through prayer, lust will have caused you to pray more and grow in faith. That's quite amazing. Martin Luther wrote those words 400 years ago, when a young boy, if he was lucky, might see the ankle of a girl going past. He didn't have to battle the things that we have to battle today. With technology, the battle has gone to a whole new level. So interesting, too, that Martin Luther speaks about other battles like fasting, imprisonment, cold, sickness, persecution, which often aren't our battle. But lust continues to be a battle. Now, as I said, we all battle in different areas. So think of the area in which you battle. What is the Bible's practical advice to us? Well, we looked at it in our sermon two weeks ago, and I can't repeat the entire sermon, but let me just remind you of the things that we looked at in 1 Thessalonians 3. When we face a battle, whether of lust or greed or gossip or pride or racism, the Bible says we're to stand firm. We stand firm in faith, knowing that God is with us and he desires us to win in this area. We stand firm in prayer, 
Prayer is a powerful weapon when it comes to our sexuality. We stand firm in fellowship. We're to keep on gathering together to learn from one another, to learn from God's Word. We pray for one another. Sometimes we confess to one another as well, which is really important. I want to encourage you to find an older Christian brother or older Christian sister that you can be open and honest with, that you can share your burdens with. We stand firm in love, in love for one another, not in condemnation or judgment, but caring concern for one another, recognizing that we all struggle in different ways. We stand firm in holiness, as we've seen this morning. We stand firm in encouragement, remembering that Jesus knows and understands. The book of Hebrews, again, speaking about Jesus, says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Was was Jesus tempted with that sin, the sin that I'm tempted in? Tested and tempted in every way. And finally, we stand firm in hope. That one day I will see Jesus face to face and my struggle will be over. I will finally and eternally be holy. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll come to the end of Paul's letter. um, And he ends in in a very wonderful way. This is how the book of Thessalonians ends. And we'll end uh, with this this morning too. He says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it.